We begin today session four of the leaven of liturgy, and you see how the, the pace at which we must go to at least try to, to understand these things somewhat fully. We are uh, in our set, fourth session in which we are going to cover the introit, the decalogue, or the summary of the law, and the curia eleison. Any one of these could be uh, a whole, you know, session could be spent on one of them, so we're going to have to uh, move our way through. And you're, you're asking yourself, what in the world is an introit? And we're going to get to it. Just hang on a second. Some of you have been here for a while. Remember that we used to do an introit at St. George's, and we may do it again eventually. But uh, before we begin getting into the leaven of liturgy, session four, we shall pray. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Give me my propers. Okay? R-E-S-B-E-C-T. Come on. Uh, that's Aretha right there. Uh, we're, we're talking about the word propers. In, in the liturgical world, you may have heard the word propers before. Uh, elements of the liturgy that change with the week or the season, collect, epistle, or gospel, are called propers. So when clergy are speaking to each other, they'll say, uh, which propers are we using this week? Is it the, the feria, which means... Uh, the Sunday for the week, or is there propers for a minor saint or a feast day that lands uh, on a fixed date throughout the week? If you're going, like I went to visit uh, the church in uh, one of our churches, Holy Cross in Farragut, Tennessee, for the, the picnic yesterday, and there was a Eucharist beforehand, clergy would have a quick buzzing conversation beforehand, which propers are we using today? And we did St. Bridget of Sweden yesterday. So there's a separate uh, collect, a separate uh, epistle and gospel for, for that particular saint. But uh, elements of the liturgy that change with the week that you're familiar with, collect, epistle, gospel, called propers. They're not called major propers, they're just called propers. But minor propers, you may have heard that one before, are elements of the liturgy that may be added but aren't essential to the service. It would be pretty bad... Not the worst thing ever, but if you had a Sunday service and you cut out the epistle and the gospel, you'd probably get in trouble with the bishop. That would be bad. <laughs> when you're doing an epist- uh, a hospital visit or something like that, sometimes you've got to cut everything out and just get right down to the Eucharist, uh, right down to confession, absolution of sins, administration of the sacraments. But on a Sunday service, you're going to have to have the propers. Uh, it's possible to have also the minor propers. Uh, these are not found in the Book of Common Prayer, if you're looking for them, but they are found in the missals. Uh, and these are things such as the introit, the gradual, the tract, the alleluia, the communion prayer. These things are listed and titled in the missal, and they're for the eyes of the priest to discern which ones we're going to use based on knowing his flock. Um, if his flock is used to hearing the introit, he'll use the introit typically. Or if he wants to lead them to use the introit, he will. We'll hear about that in just a moment. Uh, our, our church, uh, just so you know, if you notice that between the epistle and the gospel at the early service, of course we don't sing a sequence hymn, but we do use the gradual. 
So I will read a sentence, or we'll say a sentence between the epistle and the gospel. That's called the gradual and is also known as a minor proper. You could just move the epistle from one side to the other and switch uh, from epistle to gospel. But we say a a sentence that matches the theme of the day in between called the gradual and sometimes uh, the alleluia, which is not just the word alleluia, but I'll say alleluia, alleluia, the Lord is in his holy temple, alleluia, something like that. That's, That's another minor proper. Those will be inserted in the early service and not the late, only because that's how we do it at St. George, and that's what Father Paul decided. That's the reason. I'm sorry, that's a terrible reason. That's the reason. Any church you go to, though, the way the service is held, if the minor propers are said or sung or omitted, has to do with the rector. Um, If you want to change it, you can come talk to me in my office. (laughs) But I'm generally trying to... uh, to provide a liturgical setting in which everyone can worship and not be distracted. Um, That doesn't mean you can't introduce or eliminate things uh, as you go. But nevertheless, those are called the minor propers. The introit is one of the minor propers. This is Pope Celestine I of the 5th century. We'll hear a little bit about this. Introits were inserted into the liturgy first by Pope Celestine I, 422-432. And recognize that this period is the period in which liturgies are beginning to crystallize. Up until a century before this, Christianity was essentially illegal. So were they, uh, were they really getting the liturgical and theological uh, world of the, of the Christian body together? No, they were fighting to even exist and worship. So it's been a century now. We've had by this time... Uh, two ecumenical councils. We're almost on the third ecumenical council right here, and the liturgy is starting to solidify. And Pope Celestine of Rome, of course, there were five popes at the time. Anyway, uh, Pope Celestine of Rome says this introit will be, will be good for our liturgies. It appears, you might guess by the name, at the beginning of the service, because it accompanied the entrance, entrance introit, of the celebrant, and it communicated a theme for the day's liturgy. Uh, as you might guess, in, in most elements of liturgy, they're not uh, slapdash haphazardly put together. If you listen closely, uh, I don't always preach from the Old Testament or the Psalm. I don't preach from the Collect, but if you listen closely to the Collect in the Old Testament and the Psalm, you can see how it's woven together with the sermon, with the homily, when you listen closely to that gradual sentence between the epistle and the gospel, it usually has something to do with the epistle, the gospel, or the Psalter, or something like that. But uh, here we are introducing an element to the liturgy as the celebrant enters, and the choir would often be involved uh, with the introit. The introit, well, let's just see what we've got next. The introit appeared in the first Book of Common Prayer, 1549. Uh, Thomas Cranmer and the first book of Common Prayer, 1549, the introit appeared. Uh, as it had in the Sarum Missal, from which much of the BCP was translated, and even in Luther's Mass from the, ni- uh, 19, from the 1520s. Luther didn't even think to eliminate the introit. This was this is, uh, ancient tradition. Over a thousand, it was 1,100 years old at that point. No reason to eliminate it or anything like that. So... Uh, So it was included in the first Book of Common Prayer. Um, 
And uh, the introit actually used to be set at St. George's when I first came to St. George. Uh, when I first came to St. George, there was a lot of things that needed to be focused and tidied. And, you know, and so one of the, intro, the introit was one of the things that just was set aside. I didn't throw it in the trash. It's basically sitting on a shelf. And one day, it may come off the shelf. And hopefully no one will be mortally wounded by that. But, but uh, here's an example introit. Because an introit has a particular form that has, if you listen to it, it sounds redundant, but there's, an, there's a form there that begins with an antiphon, there's a verse of a psalm, there's the Gloria Patri, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And then the antiphon is repeated to complete the introit. Um, so if you hear an introit, it's being said or sung, and it sounds like he's saying what he just said, he is. Or they are, because that's the nature of an introit. Here's an example. Thou hast mercy upon all, O God, and abhorrest nothing which thou hast made, and dost overlook the sins of men, that they may repent, and thou sparest them, for thou art the, thou art the Lord our God. There's the antiphon. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee, the psalm. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, etc. World without end. Amen. Thou hast mercy upon all, O God, and abhorrest nothing which thou hast made, and dost overlook the sins of men, etc. Uh, the introit sounds like that. It's sung like that. When it's sung, the, the congregation usually stands by and just listens. Um, introits are notoriously difficult to sing because there's no meter to it. It's like, an, it's like chanting a psalm. And, and when each one's different every week, it requires a lot of rehearsal by the choir in order to nail it every time. Otherwise, it's a distraction. So uh, the introit is often just spoken by the priest. Um, anyhow, where's the introit? Yard sale. Uh-oh. <laughs> now we're getting into Reformation history here. In the 1552 Book of Common Prayer, so 1549 was the first one that Thomas Cranmer came out of. The 1552 BCP, Cranmer acquiesced Protestant, Protestant, Protestant calls that the BCP was too similar to the Latin Mass. It smelled like the Latin Mass. It looked like the Latin Mass. It sounded like the Latin Mass. You've got to do something to change it. Those aren't great reasons, by the way. That's not a great reason for a reform. But in response, the introit was removed, and the Ten Commandments were inserted, and the Gloria in Excelsis was moved to the end. Um, some, some of you have been to an Anglican service where the Gloria was said at the beginning, or a Roman service where the Gloria was said at the beginning. That actually is the original position of the Gloria. There is logic for putting it at the end, but nevertheless, the time at which it was changed was not the first Book of Common Prayer. It was the second Book of Common Prayer where uh, much of the Protestant reformers said, this isn't too Catholic, it's too Catholic. You remember us uh, saying before, that most BCP revisions since 1552 are attempts to put, to put back in items that were removed in 1552. It's still going on. I see some, <laughs> some bright eyes saying, let's do that. Um, but you, you'll find, as if you follow the revisions of the Book of Common Prayer, this was war in the middle of the 16th century, and people were wanting to cut, slash, burn... This was, uh, this was a, a rough time. I would say the fog of war, actually. 
And so since then, many of the extremer measures that were taken have been dialed back. England, by God's providence, didn't dial the dial all the way to one side or the other. Hence, we're famous for via media, generally finding the middle way in the midst of chaos. Um, So where's the introit now? Why is it not in the prayer book? That's your reason. Why do some of our churches use it? Because we've allowed it. It's included in the missals. And it's really up to the rector in terms of which way the, 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 the flock are shepherded. There was a time when to use an introit would have caused a split in the church. I think that time may have gone now. But most of the clergy are peeking out from under the rock and saying, well, I still be beheaded if I use an introit. Other churches, if you don't use the introit, you're held in great suspicion. So it's not that bad. I'm just telling you that's the nature of things. Uh, so that's the introit. Um, the Decalogue is interesting. There's Martin Luther. Um, liturgically, the Decalogue existed for the first time only in Luther's Mass in 1522 uh, or 24, I think is when he came out with a liturgy. Uh, its insertion here in the service or the summary of the law was a compromise with the Protestant Reformation true, but a pretty good idea, actually. And I think the Roman church could have looked at it and said, now that makes sense. If you're going to begin the service and have a collect uh, like uh, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, you know, though no secrets are hid from God, as the collect for purity states, we could often use a reminder. We've forgotten sometimes the secrets of our own hearts until someone says, thou shalt not steal. And you go, oh, that's right, cable. <laughs> Nobody steals cable anymore because that's, that's not a thing. <laughs> well, I don't know, who, what, what do people steal now? I don't know. But anyhow, um, when it says, uh, thou shalt not use the Lord's name in vain, you say, that might be one. Because you were feeling pretty good about the colic for purity until the Decalogue was read. <laughs> or the summary of the law, which is uh, a positive statement instead. All ten commandments were always read in every liturgical service of the Anglican Communion until 1892. It was reduced to once on Sunday. In other words, if you had two services on Sunday, as long as the Decalogue was read on one of them, you were following the rubrics of the Book of Common Prayer. In 1928, it was reduced to one Sunday a month. Hence, first Sunday of the month, we do the Decalogue here at St. George. We're following the rubrics and the rule of the 1928 Book of Common Prayer. It also allowed in 1928 for the omitting of the small print. And you know when we do the Decalogue that you breathe a sigh of relief when I don't start in on the small print. (laughs) Uh, It is possible... To do the small print, and you know what I mean, I think. Uh, Thou shalt not make to thyself any graven image. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God, and visit the sins of the fathers upon the children, upon the third and fourth generation, to them that hate me and show mercy unto thousands, and them that love and keep my commandments. <sighs> Lord, have mercy upon us and, and uh, incline our hearts to keep this law. There's nothing wrong with the, the small words, but this is, uh, you already see at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the desire of the laity who are involved now in the, uh, the changing work week, the increase of work, uh, not so much in the field, but in the factory, they got less time. 
And before labor laws are really put in, some people have to go to work on Sunday. And this service, if I'm going to attend it, has got to be shorter. Okay? If you're one of the ones that has to have a service end in one hour, um, just notice that's a new thing in the history of the church, relatively recent. But you can see in our prayer book even there's a little acquiescence to shortening the service, including the summary of the law. It was allowed... uh, on non-Decalogue Sundays, um, and I think I may have the date that are wrong on that book of common prayer, but in the, uh, yeah, it was in 1892, that prayer book, when you weren't doing the Decalogue, you were allowed to do the summary of the law. Now, the summary of the law, of course, is different. Christ turns a prohibitive set of commandments, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that, into a positive exhortation summarized down into two. Uh, Don't have other gods. Don't worship idols. Don't take my name in vain. Don't neglect the Sabbath. Those are the first four. Become, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. The first four commandments have to do with your relationship with God. And instead of saying, don't do this, the Lord says, Just love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And you won't have carved idols and you won't worship other gods. And you won't neglect the Sabbath day and you won't take his name in vain because you love with all your heart, soul, and mind. It's a positive summary. But the summary continues in the second section where honor your parents. Now we're turning to others. Honor your parents, don't kill other people, don't steal from other people, don't commit adultery, don't lie, and don't envy other people. It has to do with other people. Becomes, love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to kill them. If you love your mother as yourself and your father, you're going to honor them. If you love your neighbors as yourself, you won't steal or commit adultery, which is stealing wives. Uh, You won't lie, you won't... Uh, envy them because you love them uh, as you love yourself. How hard is it for us sometimes to rejoice when another succeeds? It's a real sign of maturity that when someone succeeds at something that you've tried to do and you failed but they succeeded, you're happy for them rather than angry at them. Uh, This is kind of what the Lord is getting at. Rather than just don't, 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 don't. The summary is a positive statement. And this was allowed liturgically uh, as the effort to shorten the service came in in the 19th, 20th centuries. Once you've heard, we'll, we'll give you a chance. Once you've heard either the prohibitions, the full Decalogue, or the summary of the law, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, if you're paying attention to yourself, and you're paying attention to those words that are said, you will say, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy upon us. And that brings us to the next section. But I wonder if you have any questions, first of all, before we move on to the Kyrie, which is kind of a different section. Questions about the introit, or about the Decalogue, or the summary of the law, or the effort to shorten the service. Any comments or questions or thoughts about that? Anybody? Uh, Frank, please. Is, was the theory behind all these changes to not just symbolize it, but perhaps to enhance the beauty of the, of the whole service? Is in the introit? Yeah. Um, 
Well, it's hard to say that the removal of certain elements uh, was attempted to make it more beautiful. It was attempted uh, in the 16th century, the, the, much of the church was into shaking things off. They just wanted things off of them. They wanted the simpler, back to the sources, uh, give us a simpler service, a simpler ecclesiology. So I don't know that that was an instinct towards beauty, especially since at that time, uh, stained glass windows were being smashed and icons were being smashed. And it was not a good time for, for that in a sense. But the summary of the law is pretty beautiful. Um, and if you, if you introduce the Decalogue, it's a pretty good idea. But if you, if you what's the word, switch the Decalogue for the summary of the law, that's just really beautiful. That's really good. Um, so I don't know that they looked at it and said, we need to make this service more beautiful. But they happened to just by including the words of, of our Lord. Um, the, uh, I would say more than beautiful, beautiful would be sort of a side effect of the rationale of the liturgy. The rationale is you don't approach in a finished state. You don't approach the altar saying, uh, you know, serve me today. You know, you approach saying, almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hid. And then you remember the law or the summary of the law and then you say, Lord, have mercy, have mercy upon us. You could say that's a beautiful thing to start the service with. You don't, definitely don't want to end the service with that. You want to begin the service with that because we've got a lot of wonderful things to do later. And you should probably get rid of all the junk in your life at the beginning of the service if you can so you can fully participate in what's to come. So I don't know if the, log- if the rationale was beauty so much. It wasn't just adornment. It was theology. And theology, when rightly used, is adorning. I think it's beautiful in the end. I think that's right. What do you think? The product that we end up with is magnificent. It's magnificent. Right. It also has to do with the fact that we don't completely overturn the apple cart every every hundred years. Uh, Much of what's going on in our liturgy has gone on since the beginning. And so the church has been honing and shaping and perfecting and stroking the beard, and then moving this prayer there, and that prayer there. It's very uh, unsettling to a person who's used to a completely spontaneous service, where every week is totally different, you know, or completely up to the minister. But for those who've had a mediocre minister, they're tired of the church being, the service being overturned every week by a guy who doesn't know what he's doing. We'd rather have something that the church has always done, that, that has been carefully handled, and that's, that's kind of what hap- is, is going on in the liturgy here. It's being carefully handled, and I think in the end, because it's carefully handled, it's beautiful. But they don't say, this would be a flowery phrase. Let's say this beautiful thing. Um, it's not like that, if that's what you mean. So. But at this point in the service, it's appropriate to come to the Kyrie Eleison, which of course is Greek, for Lord have mercy upon us. Uh, the fact that the Kyrie eleison is, is retained in the Book of Common Prayer reveals at least some affinity of the, of the Anglican Church for the Eastern Church. The attempt was to retain something from the East because this is good. Um, we don't want to eliminate this part from our liturgy, but the Anglicans aren't the only ones, of course. Luther wove a curiae eleison into the recitation of the Ten Commandments, and we still do that here. 
Notice that in our responses to each of the commandments, uh, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have none of the gods but me, we say, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. That's a Kyrie eleison right there. We have essentially a tenfold Kyrie eleison built into the responses to the Ten Commandments. So that's, that's pretty good. But uh, we respond, yeah, Lord, have mercy upon us and, and incline our hearts to keep this law. But when the summary is stated, uh, hear what our Lord Jesus Christ saith, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, etc. When the, curie, uh, uh, when the summary is stated instead of all ten, the response is simply the curie itself. Some churches, and I think this church even used to do it, uh, when you did the Ten Commandments, you did a shorter version of the Kyrie because you just kind of did it ten times. Now you've got to do it nine more times. We're back to nine. So on days when we do the Decalogue, I don't mean to introduce a belaboring thought to your mind. We say the Kyrie 19 times on that day. We sing it, we say it, we do all kinds of different ways. But we, we really are asking for mercy a, a bunch of times on the first Sunday of the month. And, you know, someone who is com- very mechanical about this would say, you've already said, Lord, have mercy upon us once. Why do you have to say it ten times? Why do you have to say it nine times? Why not just say it the one time and that's enough? Well, if you've ever asked for forgiveness or tried to forgive someone, you generally have to do it more than once. <laughs> if someone hurts you, you forgive me, I forgive you. Bothers you the next day. Bothers you the next day. Still forgive bothers you the next day. And so I feel like asking for mercy, you could probably stand to repeat that a few times. Um, so, so we move on with the Kyrie eleison. Does anyone know Mr. Mister? <laughs> if you've listened to 80s radio, you've heard Kyrie eleison by Mr. Mister. I, I'm loath to sing it, but I'm tempted. Does anyone? <laughs> oh, I don't want to sing it. You know, Kyrie eleison on the road that I must travel. Kyrie eleison for the something on the da 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 da. Guitars and all that. And when, you, when you've heard that song a million times and then you suddenly hear it, they're saying Kyrie eleison from our liturgy. It's not that great of a song, but it is an 80s classic. Uh, they are saying, Lord have mercy upon us in Greek in that particular song. Uh, it is an acclamation similar to Hosanna from the Old Testament. Uh, it's... It was introduced along with litanies. You can imagine when you turn to the litany in our book, uh, we'll, we'll say, oopsie, wrong way, to the litany in the Book of Common Prayer, we will say words like, sorry, getting to the litany, uh, that it may please thee to send forth laborers into thy, into thy harvest. We beseech thee to hear us, good Lord. Or at the beginning, O God, the Creator, uh, God the Father, Creator of heaven and earth, page 54, have mercy upon us. O God, the Son, Redeemer of the world, have mercy upon us. That original Kyrie associated with litanies from the 5th century is still there in the Book of Common Prayer, introduced by Pope uh, Galasius. His, uh, his time as Pope was 1492 to 1496. Had an important... Whoa, what have I done? Oh, it's upside down. There we go. Um, Gregory the Great, a couple centuries later, removed the requirement for a litany in the service. We have a litany in the prayer book, but it's not required either. But left the Kyrie in place, reducing them to nine. You can imagine if a litany was several pages long, 
the Kyrie could be 64 times you say the Kyrie. He says, let's reduce it to nine and included Christie eleison, making of the nine a Trinitarian plea. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. It wasn't originally a Trinitarian, but it became Trinitarian when uh, Gregory intentionally put Christie eleison, Christ, have mercy upon us. In the center, now it's Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in the, in the Kyrie eleison that we have in our prayer books. Even though in our prayer book there's only three, it's the threefold, not the ninefold, uh, we oftentimes, all the time, no, unless the service is spoken, we use nine at this church. Um, it's possible to sing it in three BCP reduces the Kyrie to a threefold format, but ninefold is permissible, and every time we sing it, we sing the ninefold at St. George's. You may go to another church where they do three, and you'll be caught off guard, but then you won't be offended because you realize there's a little bit of elbow room here. Um, the Kyrie may be said or sung to many different settings, and the wording of the Kyrie has been different throughout the centuries. But the intention is the same. You remember we talked about the Serum Missal is where much of our Book of Common Prayer was translated from. There also existed a York Missal and a Hereford Missal in England. But the York Missal had 29 different versions of the Kyrie. You can kind of see how now the Book of Common Prayer was a manner of simplifying this, putting it in your own language because this would all have been in Latin, Simplifying this and putting this all in the hands of the laity, saying, no longer do you have to be an expert, educated monk or priest to participate. You can just say with your voice, Lord, have mercy upon us. We'll all say it together. But at the time, it would sound something more like this. Of course, this would have all been in Latin. Lord, almighty Father unbegotten, on us wretched ones have mercy. Lord, who has redeemed thy handwork by thine own son, have mercy. Lord, Adonai, blot out our sins and on thy people have mercy. You'll never memorize this. Uh, Christ, the splendor of the Father's glory and the image of his substance, have mercy. Christ, who didst save the world at the Father's bidding, have mercy. Christ, salvation of men and eternal life of angels, have mercy. More. Lord, the Spirit, the paraclete, bestower of pardon, have mercy. Lord, fountain of mercy, sevenfold in grace, have mercy. Lord, most gracious partner, proceed from both, most bounteous bestower of spiritual gifts, have mercy. This is not for the laity. This is for a professional choir that's going to sing, and you are going to sit in your pew and listen. And your heart may be uh, at one with the choir or with the priest, but this was not for you. This was for them. You see now how the Book of Common Prayer is bringing this liturgy back to you, into your hands, and actually into your voice. This is going to be hard, especially if there's 29 versions of it. This is going to be hard to get the laity to participate. Even if you've got the words in front of you, it's too much, it's too fast, it's too, uh, too many words, uh, I don't get it. Um, Why do I have to go to church? You start having thoughts like that. (laughs) You know, there's football on. Uh, Woo, yeah, I'll go there. Anyhow, um, you you can kind of see in 1514, this is not that long before the first Book of Common Prayer, you can see how 
what, and for the laity, what an improvement the Book of Common Prayer is. Any questions about that? The Kyrie, the sort of the evolution of the Kyrie. So now uh, I'm going to talk to you just a little bit for the next, uh, oh, we got a little bit of time. Uh, next little bit about the Kyrie itself, uh, which has been referred to in times past as monologistic prayer. Monologistic, mono, one, log, word, one word prayers. Now by word, we don't necessarily mean syllable or individual word, but one simple thing to say, Lord have mercy upon us. That's a word, okay? That's a monologistic prayer. The history of, uh, of this in the church is widespread and quite ancient. St. Paul, the reason it comes about initially, is St. Paul instructs Christians to pray without ceasing. That mysterious command has been interpreted and applied in different ways in Christian history. One way it was interpreted is by having seven hours of prayer and a group of people called monks and nuns that quit everything secular, went completely religious, and had nothing to do but pray essentially. Some orders had some work involved. Others were very contemplative. It was all prayer. And that was their version of praying without ceasing, praying continuously. But for the rest of the church, they said, wait a second. These professional Christians can pray without ceasing, but I can't? St. Paul was a tent maker. And that's basically canvas. He was dealing with canvas all the time. There was a lot of physical labor in creating and treating and selling canvas. But he was uh, praying without ceasing. How does that work? One interpretation from the East manifests in simple one-word prayers... And the Kyrie eleison was amongst the first forms later expanded into the Jesus prayer. Okay, so if you think about the Eastern version of the Jesus prayer, uh, I think I've got it here. Lord Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you squeeze that down real small, it's actually, Lord, have mercy upon me. That's the Kyrie eleison. It's been expanded into the Jesus prayer. Uh, John Cassian, 4th century, Conference 10, to Abba Isaac. Abba Isaac recommends a monologistic prayer for all circumstances. This, uh, this conference was read by all Benedictine monks for a thousand years, and I think they're still reading it. And, they, and uh, Abba Isaac recommends, this would have been in the 4th century, written down in the 5th, Psalm 70, verse 1. O God, make speed to save me, O Lord, make haste to help me. That's it. Just not that far from Lord, have mercy upon us. And he recommends that prayer for everything. When you are in joy, when you are in sorrow, when you are in temptation, when you are in sin, when you are in repentance, when you are in devastation, when you are in elation, works for everything. God, make speed to save me. O Lord, make haste to help me a monologistic prayer to be repeated in your mind. Mind you, those of you that are resisting this, saying, but the scriptures say not to, not to uh, speak repetitively, think that, thinking that you'll be heard as the pagans do. This really isn't so that God will hear you the more times that you say it. It's so that you will hear God the more times that you say it. That's kind of the idea, not so that he'll hear you because you said it 150,000 times. But... Uh, to pray without ceasing, 
uh, or when discursive prayer is impossible, the, the dialogue that goes on sometimes throughout the day with you and the Lord, or if you are in such a spot in your life that you've prayed everything you can think to pray. I can't, I can't think of another thing to pray. I've asked for everything. I've told him everything. And it's another day, and I'm supposed to get up and say, Lord, you know my pain. And it's like, he already knows that. Uh, please have mercy upon this person we've been praying for for a month. You already know all that. I know all that. Can I just say, Lord, have mercy? That's pretty good. When people have got nothing left to pray, can't think of any more wordy prayer, just pray, Lord, have mercy upon us. Perfect. It's perfect. When that discursive prayer is impossible, it's not to entirely replace the conversation that you have with the Lord sometimes, but Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us is just fine, especially when it's said from the heart. It's just fine. The Orthodox Church teaches, Lord Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner, which is really the prayer of the publican. If you remember, the Pharisee and the publican both come to the temple. The Pharisee is a jerk, and the publican actually prays a pretty good prayer. It's almost the Jesus prayer. It's pretty much exactly the Jesus prayer. In the Roman church and in other churches, uh, the, the, uh, the Hail Mary is used as a monologistic prayer, prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Now that's a longer prayer, uh, and there's two elements to it. But nevertheless, the idea is the same. It's a monologistic prayer. My brain is buzzing, it's buzzing in all different directions at once. I can't seem to focus. I'm going to ask for prayer. And uh, prayer is requested of St. Mary. Um, it's the same idea. And you'll find uh, prayer, you'll find rosaries for the West and prayer knots in the East. It's the same idea. Neither of which are so that the Lord will hear you when you get to the end of this. That's not the point. The point is your brain is a wasp's nest that someone put a stick in and you are distracted like a puppy. I don't know, I'm making stuff up. You know what I'm saying. You know what distraction is. Uh, this is a way of, of focus. Focus, please. Calm this mind down. Returning to that word. Um, even Eastern uh, religions have understood that the human being needs a word to focus on to stop the buzzing. Um, and the Kyrie eleison is inserted into our, our liturgy, but you can use it. It's uh, a prayer word. You can use it throughout your week and in your own personal prayer. That's the introit. The Decalogue or the summary and the Kyrie eleison of our own liturgy. And I've talked a lot. So anybody else uh, got a question or a comment or something? Please, Michael. I watched a TV show about a year ago. They were interviewing monks in the monastery. Right. They brought out that one issue you just made. How do you pray without ceasing? You're not praying now. Right. The monks and I certainly am. Yeah. That's, that's like background music all day long. Our prayers go through our brain. No kidding. Um, 
there are those that have come out of the Orthodox Church, those who are in the Orthodox Church, and, and the Roman Church, I shouldn't say the Orthodox, but the Orthodox especially are known for the Jesus Prayer. And there are members of our church, I won't name names, but uh, find, who find that throughout their day, they just catch themselves saying the Jesus Prayer. I'm saying it all day long, just over and over and over again. There are others, and part of the reason the liturgy doesn't change every week is because you'll be going through your day and you'll suddenly be saying, Lord, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Changing light bulbs, cleaning shelves, shoveling ditches, doing everything. You're praying without ceasing all day long, which is why we want to get these tunes stuck in your head as much as possible. Please, Jack. Yeah. Regarding the introit, we as Americans the last 'll say this uh, it's a perfect statement thank you uh, that in it, it's interesting that in the effort to cast off the service gets shorter because we also want to cast off the amount of time this is going to take us to do this I was congratulated once on doing a short service and I was mortified <laughs> I said it has it is not now and has never been and never will be my intention to end this service on time or to if you're in a hurry, you're in the wrong place. You hurry to get to this place. And then when you're here, you're happy. You don't hurry to get out of this place. You're hurry to, if you're hurry to get out, the doors are open. I mean, they're right there. You should be in a hurry to get here, not get out. So we do, typically do end at exactly the same time every Sunday, but that's because the liturgy is just great. But the, the instinct to remove things... Do you know that the very first attempted Book of Common Prayer in this country removed the Nicene Creed? Oops, exactly. (laughs) Somebody said, oops. What a terrible idea. But that was at a time when we were just going to slash and burn and throw things out and cast things off. Wait, 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 wait. Thank God the providence of God intervened and we did not cast out the Nicene Creed from the first American Book of Common Prayer. And so some of that idea of let's get rid of everything is we need to cool it on that. Um, the, uh, what I call the Godfather. Yes. Fit into your group of prayers. Because uh, I find myself during right. yeah. doing that quite a bit. Right. And the, have, I don't know why, but that's... No, that's actually perfect. My mind and the Lord I, says... Because the Lord, when the disciples ask the Lord, how shall we pray? He doesn't give them the Jesus prayer. When he says, how shall we pray? He doesn't give them the Kyrie. How shall we pray? He gives them a liturgical prayer to be repeated. Our Father who art in heaven. Um, Which is a perfectly fine uh, monologistic prayer. And actually, there are two uh, conferences of John Cassian about prayer. This is the second one. In the first one, he goes through the Lord's prayer. 
When he said, because the, the, his students are asking him, how should we pray? He says, well, let's turn to our Lord. Uh, but this, this particularly, I was talking about the Kyrie in this, in this particular portion. But that is another, obviously, key element of prayer. And easily, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We got to stop now. So thank you all. All right.